1: Just the international system is not working the way that it's supposed to. And when you have a coordination failure, these kind of intelligence failures are able to happen. And disorders like Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas are savvily able to take advantage of of just our dropping the ball. The situation is so chaotic, who knows what will happen next? I don't put it past Netanyahu to not make concentration camps.
2: Hello and welcome to a special emergency episode of Behind the Lines, the geopolitics podcast with me, Arthur Snell. We're recording this on the evening of the 9th of October, only three days after the stunning horror of Hamas' attack on Israel. Much remains unclear, but we know now that a major Hamas operation completely blindsided Israel's defences, and nearly 1,000 Israelis, mostly civilians, are dead, with several hundred taken as hostages to Gaza. Israel has regained control of the towns that were seized by Hamas fighters, but there remain gunmen at large in what is obviously a chaotic situation. Israel has responded with a huge mobilisation of forces against Hamas. There are 600 killed in Gaza already, according to the BBC, and Gaza is under siege with no access to supplies of water, electricity or food. Hamas is threatening to kill a hostage every time Israel carries out an airstrike without warning Palestinian civilians. So this is a chaotic horrific and bloody situation. And to help us to come to terms with these extraordinary events, I'm joined by Jason Pack. Some of you may have heard him speak on Libya and the disordered world, but Jason is very much a Middle East specialist. He lived seven years in the region. He speaks Arabic and Hebrew. He lived three years in East Jerusalem, two years in Syria and a year in Egypt. And he is, of course, presenter of the Disorder podcast and founder and director of the NATO and the Global Enduring Disorder Project. Jason, welcome to Behind the Lines.
1: It's a pleasure to be back, but unfortunately, I wish it was under different circumstances,
2: Arthur. Indeed. Um, so, Jason, let's start with the basics. Uh, everybody was caught unawares by this, uh, whether they you know, got a sort of notification on their smartphone or switched on the news. But even Israel, which famously may have the world's finest intelligence and security and, of course, has an extremely capable military, was also caught unawares. How has this happened?
1: Well, I think that what has happened is horrific and barbaric, but not necessarily surprising, because Abraham Lincoln said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And for more than a year now, since Benjamin Netanyahu, Bibi, the Israeli prime minister, has tried to push these extreme judicial reforms to kind of undo Israeli democracy. Uh, Israeli reservists have been on strike. The Air Force pilots have been on strike. Some of the intelligence services have not necessarily been functioning correctly. And Israel has had its most polarizing, most extreme right-wing cabinet in its history, filled not only with settler ministers, but transferist ministers. And transferist in the Israeli sense means right-wing Israeli Jews who wish to displace Palestinians from their homes. So Israel has been so divided and so weakened and so dysfunctional. It's not surprising that Israel's enemies would be like, now is the perfect time to attack. Then if you add in the fact that 50 years and one day before the attack was the anniversary of the 1973 Yom Kippur war and the fact that many regional disorderers such as Iran wanted to scupper the Saudi Israel detente. This was the perfect time for some kind of operation. I was not surprised that something happened, but you're right. It is a tremendous shock. How could the Israeli intelligence have missed something of this scale, and how could they have been so incompetent in building a barrier fence that the Palestinians essentially cut down the fence or flew gliders over it and then went on a rampage and killed hundreds of peoples at a rave in in Kibbutzim, you know, abducting women and then taking them away and raping them. It's just unbelievable, Arthur.
2: Yeah, it is, and of course we are. We're not at this stage going to be able to answer the specifics of the intelligence failure. But one various reports are already emerging. Uh, Reuters had a, had a report which described, apparently sourced to some uh, Hamas official, described the preparations that have been made, including a mock-up of an Israeli settlement that that Hamas fighters trained on. So training to storm this settlement. And then there's a there's a report in the Wall Street Journal that. Uh, There was a meeting in Beirut only a week ago with Iran kind of signing off on this plan. So it seems that this is, of course, an intelligence failure for Israel, but it's an intelligence failure for other countries that, you know, the U.S. should be capable of knowing that uh, Iran is in Beirut uh, planning or participating in the planning of a major terror operation. You might expect Jordan, with its famous intelligence agencies, to know about what Hamas are up to. So it seems that... um, And Egypt... And Egypt, of course, Egypt, a, a extraordinarily uh, capable, uh, by, by certainly in historical terms, perceived in that way. So it seems that across the board, of course, people will be pointing things at Israel's intelligence agencies, and, and that's not inappropriate. But across the board, there has been an intelligence failure.
1: Well, my argument is that that's caused by the global enduring disorder. All of our societies are not functioning properly. Yes, Israel is a house divided against itself because of the current tensions, but so is America because of the Biden wing and the Trump wing. All of a sudden, the Trumpians are always like, well, you shouldn't be working with Iran. The hostage deal with Iran caused this. And, you know, dealing with the Palestinians is a mistake. And then the Biden people are like, oh, no, no, we can't do this. And the Saudis and the Kuwaitis and the Emiratis haven't been willing to deal with Biden to produce more crude to decrease the shortages in the wake of Russia's invasion with Ukraine. So just the international system is not working the way that it's supposed to. And when you have a coordination failure, these kind of intelligence failures are able to happen. And disorderers like Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas are savvily able to
2: take advantage of of just our dropping the ball. So let's talk a little bit about the disorderers because as you mentioned at the outset, one of the many ramifications of this, and of course the the immediate ramification, is the human tragedy of those people directly affected. But there are there are wider sort of geopolitical ramifications, and one of them is uh, the fact that Israel and Saudi Arabia were inching towards a historic peace deal. That um, you know that the the most significant country of the Arab world, certainly in economic terms, and increasingly uh, in, in all other ways. Uh, would make peace with Israel, the sort of historic enemy of the Arab world. Um, that that has been blown out of the water. And of course, immediately when that happens, the country that we think of it, that would gain the most from this bit is Iran. And then we ask ourselves, is there, a, is there a connection between Iran and Russia on this file? And then we ask ourselves, is there significance to the visit of Hamas senior leadership to Russia only a month ago? So is this part of a huge disorder as conspiracy, or is it more a case of people taking advantage of this chaotic world? Both. I think that the disorderers
1: are all in league with each other. The Russians are licking their chops. One, uh, Western armaments are going to have to be diverted to Israel that were scheduled for Ukraine. Two, many people in the US and UK are more supportive of the Israelis' Than they are of the Ukrainians, and in the the U.S. Congress, many Republicans are going to be like, "Why are we supporting the Ukrainian?" Look, it's what's happening in Israel. Do you know what I mean? So that they're going to do false what aboutism because we need to support them both. Do you know what I mean? It's two very different situations, but the disorderers are inherently opportunists. I think it's key to point out that the Iranians don't have a vision for a regional order. Hamas doesn't have a vision of, oh, we're trying to get a negotiated settlement where we get control over the Rafah crossing. No, of course not. They just want to, you know, disorder things and kill a few hundred Israelis and then get their prisoners out of jail. They don't have an end status. Disorderers win without a plan. And that is why our internal divisions are so advantageous for the disorderers. Do you know what I mean? If, if they see that, you know, Trump works with the Saudis, but Biden is opposed by the Saudis, wow, they can take advantage of that. And if they see in Israel, how great is this? All of the Israeli centrists who, you know, work in the high tech sector and run the intelligence are protesting in the reserve strikes. Great. Let's just make the most ambitious operation that we've ever had.
2: I think what, one aspect of that, of this, which is worth sort of digging into a little, is this thing of perception. Um In, in Western countries, with a few exceptions, people on the fringes of politics might, um, you know, say offensive things about Israelis or, or, or show kind of gross insensitivity. But it, it's really, uh, that there's a fairly kind of universal response. Um, but that's not the response that you would hear in the Arab world. And, and you, you know, you've lived, as, as I mentioned in my introduction, several years, uh, in the Arab world. So how, Does an event like this, how is that seen? And how is the Palestinian struggle seen, even in the light of something horrific like this, which just looks like a a sort of ghastly terrorist massacre? Well, firstly, let me say
1: that I don't think the West is as united as you might imagine. We're all in our filter bubbles. There are the videos of, you know, the British communists protesting on High Street Kensington. There was a, a kosher restaurant in golders green in north london that was ransacked just this morning um here in manhattan various pro-palestinian demonstrators are clashing in midtown with pro-israeli demonstrators shockingly the harvard union has signed a statement whereby they have said and these are just regular harvard students undergrads that they think palestinians are not to blame at all for the violence which is now engulfing gaza is a crazy statement i mean even though i'm fairly supportive of the palestinian cause i couldn't imagine such a statement you know so i don't think it's fair to say that well in the mainstream west everyone stands with israel because they've been the victims here no i think that we're in these different filter bubbles and this is what makes this quite different from what has come before do you know what i mean before social media yes In 1967 or 1973, there might have been a more homogenous US or UK reaction to events. But now, depending on what social media you're consuming, you get different videos and there's a lot of Russian misinformation out there and people are very polarized. Can I tell you about what the historical analogy is for me of how polarization and the house divided can allow it to collapse? When we think about World War II, we tend to forget that the Nazis were very aware of internal divisions in France. When Leon Blum ran as the first socialist and first Jewish prime minister of France for the Front Populaire in 1936, he had to cobble together a range of left-wing forces. He won. And then all of a sudden, the Catholic and the moneyed and other bourgeois interests took all their money out of France and they stopped preparing militarily. And therefore, when Daladier and others came into power after the Leon Blum government collapsed in 1938, the French were not ready to fight. So, even though in the 1920s they had the most powerful army in all of Europe, when General Gamelin was trying to actually get the divisions to, you know, go into the Netherlands or to respond to the Blitzkrieg, he found that the French edifice simply didn't work. They they couldn't command and this is what's not being discussed i think about the situation that israel is in yes israelis are now all rallying together because this is depending on how you look at it, their pearl harbor or the 9-11 moment but the israeli intelligence apparatus and the military apparatus collapsed and this is because neo-populists like netanyahu or trump so anger people on the opposite side that they can't work with them they're dysfunctional. So, when Trump says, I will build the wall, I will block the migrants, guess what? We have more migrants now, and the wall isn't built. So, Netanyahu has been saying, I am the only one who can secure Israel. Those leftists are a bunch of fucking pinko cowards. And then he's in power,
2: and the greatest military failure in Israeli history happens. And of course, if we look at uh, the history of Netanyahu's approach to Hamas, clearly Netanyahu would naturally uh, probably have extreme hatred for for Hamas and everything it stands for, and and that's that's not surprising. But so hamas has presented a certain sort of advantage to netanyahu over the years the uh if we think of the the kind of settler agenda that he's very associated with or the even the annexational agenda that's all about the west bank and it's the uh you know the west bank is not under control of hamas of course it's under control of the palestinian authority gaza is a different thing gaza is a place where which uh, reminds Israelis of their vulnerability, but until until uh, before last week, it was kind of it was a, an annoying irritant that 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 sort of justified the existence of a militarized society, but never actually threatened you. Uh, and and so you we we think back to 2018, where of course Netanyahu, as prime minister, basically did a deal with Gaza, which ensured that they continued to get their funding via Qatar, um, whilst sort of maintaining their Iron grip on 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 the on the sort of place, and, and that feels to be the kind of the the start of something that may have built up into what we're seeing now.
1: I think it goes back much further. In the 1980s, the Israelis helped create Hamas. This is the history of it. I'm happy to uh, email the academic articles to anyone who's interested. But it was the Israeli right and the Likud, going back to Begin and Shamir, who worked with the Islamist fringes to oppose Fatah and the PLO and Arafat who they considered a terrorist a secular terrorist but a terrorist so they wanted to outflank him and weaken him within the Palestinian structures and Netanyahu has continued that policy so I want to jump back to your question you know I've lived in the Arab world how will these things be perceived there I wish I could say with nuance but the reality is there is no nuance at all when I was in Libya right after the uprising so say when i went to tripoli in september 2011 and it was just august 20th 2011 that the city fell to the rebels you would see pictures of Gaddafi with a jewish star on him you would see anti-semitic graffiti and you're like what what in the world does the overthrow of qaddafi well because the rebels were against someone they said he was a jew and then, when I lived in Lebanon, and of course the Lebanese are much closer to this issue, I, you know, th- you, I experienced bizarre forms of anti-Semitism that you can't even imagine, right? So, people in the region are already tweeting and releasing polemics in Arabic, saying that you know the Jews are getting what they deserve and that they caused this and whatever. Like, I, I, I tell the following funny story to try to get you to understand how deep this hatred has become i'm in a syrian christian's house in Sidnaya, which is an aramaic christian village outside damascus in 2004 i'm there for christmas the kid gets a piggy bank you know to save pennies in for his christmas present in 2006 the kid is let's say seven years old and he said Baba, wallah, ma biddi bank Yehudi. I don't want a Jewish bank. The idea that obviously Jews save pennies. So you're like, how can a seven-year-old who's never met a Jew say something so bizarrely idiosyncratically anti-Semitic? And he's a Christian who then, when I talk to him later, is like, I want to go to America because all Christians should be allowed to go to America. But he's like, well, Lama biddi bank yahoodie, because he got this this piggy bank as his Christmas present. So I have to say, my experiences of these kind of things lead me to believe that the partisanship, even in places like Tunisia and the Gulf, which are, you know fairly secular and open to the west is going to be instant solidarity with the palestinians the regimes who have dealings with the israelis like the moroccans and jordanians and emiratis are going to be ducking for cover they can't stand up for their relationship with israel at all because it's just simply not popular in the arab street because of the 80 last years of arab nationalist rhetoric about israel and and the neocolonialism and imperialism of it and there's a feedback loop going on here because the hard left in our societies the communist and woke left gives a range of messages in english which launders these arab nationalist and islamist talking points with a little bit of russian propaganda sprinkled on top so yes it is not popular to strike a moderate tone In the Arab world. So, for example, I was listening to BBC News Hour on September 7th. And that was the day after the start of the war. And Marwan Barghouti was on. And he is arguably more to the left or more centrist than Abu Mazen. He's really seen as a peacenik in the Palestinian circles. And he said, I don't believe it is possible to blame any Palestinians for the shedding of palestinian blood the israelis should simply not invade gaza and do a prisoner swap and release every single palestinian in israeli jail and then they can have their hostages back and you're like oh my god this was an opportunity for him to be a leader but he cannot we're in such a polarized landscape it's impossible in the middle east to have a sane conversation about any of these issues
0: Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and it, your, your anecdote of, of being with that Assyrian family, I, I recall once... Having a long conversation again with, as it happened, a Christian Arab in Lebanon, um, and and it was it was you know his views on on Britain's role, of course, of the Balfour Declaration, famously, uh, you know, the sort of foundational moment, arguably for the state of Israel or one of the foundational moments, and um, and this man explained to me in detail. And he was a highly educated, well-read man. That the reason was that the British royal family are Jewish, but it's a secret. And and that explains why Britain, you know, and of course, uh, there was so much anti-Semitism in Britain in the early twentieth century. I, I'm sure you could find evidence that Britain's royal family was anti-Semitic. I doubt you could find evidence that they were Jewish. But there you go. But that that sort of that's that's something that that, that, that is there. No, of course, we we have to um, uh, recognize certain uh, aspects of this, which are which are factual and and painful, such as the fact that. Uh, already in Gaza today, 600 people have died, which is getting towards the number of Israelis that have died. And of course, this isn't about body counts. But of course, for many in the Arab world, they might say, well, it is about body counts, actually. Uh, Palestinians die in greater numbers than Israelis. So why? Oh, and why by the end care? of the conflict,
1: Arthur, everyone knows that more Palestinians will be dead than Israelis.
2: Yes. So then, so what? what is the response to that?
1: I think it is very unfortunate that the media, particularly in the Arab world, but elsewhere, normalizes that killing Israeli civilians is somehow connected to military reprisals and attempts to, uh you know, filter out or deal with hamas targets yes there have been rampages of settlers in the west bank that we need to call out as terrorism there's jewish settler terrorism where they simply go and they you know rip up some old palestinian grandfather's olive trees and if he protests they kill him but that's just as much terrorism as what hamas has done but the body count here is unless i'm missing something the israeli government is not simply trying to kill palestinians to have a level body count. Yeah. I hope that they're trying to hit military targets to prevent the Hamas from having a command and control over the rampaging terrorists which are in southwestern Israel. But um the situation is so chaotic, who knows what will happen next. I don't put it past Netanyahu to not make concentration camps. He could be like, great, I need to get the hostages and to filter out the Hamas. We're putting all of the Gazans into concentration camps or deporting them or whatever this could get so bad it's going to make anything that has come before in terms of outrageous israeli-palestinian violence and humanitarian catastrophe look like nothing i think that this this is the worst um middle eastern event or israeli-palestinian outrage of our lifetimes
2: definitely and of course um you know the immediate question is What Israel can try to achieve in its current military operation against Gaza, they've said very clearly that they will they will cease uh, the the sort of bring an end to to Hamas's military uh, capability, but they will also make it impossible for Hamas to govern Gaza. Now, Hamas has controlled Gaza for nearly twenty years, so that is if that is a genuine uh, objective, it is very hard to understand how this could be done without. Reducing the entire Gaza Strip to rubble at the most densely populated place in the world, and all the while we must mustn't forget the terrible fate of the hostages. You know, most of whom, of course, are civilians. There are children, there are women, uh, and you know you can't imagine the the terror that they're going through. Um, so what is it clearly uh, Netanyahu didn't have a plan because he was blindsided by this. Uh, but what do you think he is trying to do now? Is, is he going to try to simply sort of destroy, you know, um, Gaza delenda est, as the Romans would have said?
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about Carthage a lot and uh, Cato the Elder since this has started. I fear that Netanyahu is not a rational thinker and that even though I disliked him a lot, Ariel Sharon would have been better positioned to deal with this and we have to remember Ariel Sharon despite being at that time Israel's most right-wing prime minister he made the heat not kut, the withdrawal from Gaza yeah and he believed that every Jewish life mattered and yes he probably was complicit in the Sabra and Shatila massacres in in southern Beirut of, of Palestinian refugee camps but he was trying to rationally protect Jewish slash Israeli interests not in the way that I might have wanted, but that was his goal. I don't think Netanyahu cares about every Jewish life. I don't think he cares about rationally protecting Israeli interests. He is the standard neo populist, like an Orban or a Trump. He cares about staying in power. And it's important to realize that he's not a warmonger, Arthur. He avoided wars. He didn't want to do the 2006 war and he wasn't in power then. And he's done everything to avoid you know, other wars. He's not a strong man. He's a let's stay in power populist, just like Trump. Trump wants to be an isolationist. He doesn't want to be involved in foreign wars. Let's withdraw from Afghanistan. So Netanyahu is now in a position where he might have to be a paper hawk, you know, or a paper tiger. And he's not going to make a rational calculation about Oh, how can we get to an end status? Can we bring in the Saudis and the Egyptians to then, you know, have a condominium over Gaza so we can extricate ourselves? No, I think that Netanyahu is exposed as literally no better than a Trump figure who has maybe spoken a little bit more sophisticatedly than Trump, but has no answers to the great problems that his people have faced
2: yeah and certainly the 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 escalatory nature of his time as prime minister you know that the and of course this is difficult to talk about because nothing nothing that someone does justifies going to a rave and massacring every you know all these youngsters who are just you know trying to enjoy themselves but justification is not the same as rationalization and i guess uh the the way that Netanyahu and his government has behaved, has created the circumstances in which it is more likely that these events occurred. Um, That's 100% true. In other words, no matter how
1: horrific the Hamas actions were, you must point the blame, to my mind, at not only Netanyahu, but the people who promoted the extreme right-wing judicial overhaul and the American Jewish Hedge fund managers who funded the right wing think tanks who came up with this idea of this judicial overhaul. They essentially are like the conservatives in France in the period of 1936 to 1940, where they said, look, those guys on the left, they're worse than the Nazis. And that's what Trump does. He points at the liberals and says, these guys are worse than the Chinese and the Russians these these liberals and that perspective creates the global enduring disorder that we're now in
2: yeah so i was i was looking today at um statements made by uh not even members of the far right parties but but liquid party, uh, members of the Knesset, statements made by Likud members about Shin Bet, uh, Israel's security agency, not not obviously since the the events of Saturday, but in in the last few months. And they're accused of having a leftist agenda. They're accused of having a deep state uh, sort of, um, you know, anti-elected government um, perspective. And in addition to that, something that, that struck me was that in the immediate aftermath of these events, there was a moment when it looked like some kind of national unity government would be put together. And of course, Netanyahu, even if he's, uh, you know, one might not share any of his views or um, or objectives, he he he's definitely wants to stay in power. I mean, that's that's his that's literally been his single sort of overriding action throughout his political career. And there was a moment when surely. It would have been in his interest to say, you know, this is my big statesman moment. I'm making a government of national unity. We're at war. We're gonna we're gonna march together towards the sound of gunfire. But he didn't do that, and he wants to operate this uh, war with this motley crew of far right extremists. So why is that? That may not last. I mean.
1: Israeli politics is like Italian politics. Governments rise and fall and there are millions of elections. So we can't say what's going to happen next. Maybe he will get rid of the far right parties and Yael Lapid will join the government. I mean, that's not impossible. But either way, the Israeli democracy functions and there will be a quick feedback loop here. When Israel was attacked in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War, three decades worth of labor, Avodah rule, was ended. And that's what allowed the Likud to come into power. We've now had more than a decade of Likud dominance. And I think it's not unlikely that in the next electoral cycle, all of the right will be kicked out and an entire political realignment will happen. The Israelis are unbelievably frustrated with their leadership that has allowed this to happen. I think it's important to keep in mind that because of the Herzilian Zionism, which permeates many on the Israeli center, they believe that Israel exists to provide safe haven and shelter and protection of Jews. Ergo, whatever you think about any of these ideological things, if the Israeli government fails to provide security and safe haven and shelter, the feedback loop is incredibly abrupt. And it, Is more profound than if, let's say, roving Mexican cartel drug warlords crossed the wall of the Rio Grande, got into Texas, you know, took over some schools and started massacring American children and then forcing fentanyl down the mouths of some junkies. That may or may not speak directly to Biden's competence, but in Israel, the very essence of the government and the state exists to prevent this scenario from happening. So I can't imagine that Netanyahu and his political uh, allies have much left.
2: Yeah. And, and in a way, that's sort of perhaps where to go to, towards the end of this discussion, this this sense of invulnerability. Of course, Israel is by definition a vulnerable state. We, we all know about the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War. But in recent years, one had the sense of invulnerability, you know, the Gaza was surrounded by a high wall, the Iron Dome meant that very few rockets could get through, of course Israel has its own nuclear weapons, these incredible assassination operations happening in Iran, and you sort of think, you know, people go to Tel Aviv to party, or even, you know, maybe to raves in the desert, many of the people who were there were not Israeli, that um, Israel had become a safe country, and, and the, the Palestinians had been almost rendered an irrelevance, of course, in in what they regard as their own land. Um, that is clearly that was completely wrong. You know, there were there was huge complacency in all of that. But I guess what I wanted to ask at the, at the end is, does this change anything about what is supposedly the underlying question, which is, is there a way in which uh, Palestinian and Israeli can live in the same piece of territory? Obviously not sharing territory but there, there has to be some durable uh, method which is which is not the situation we have at the moment and of course what used to be called the middle east peace process but no one calls it that now because it isn't one what is there is there a two-state solution or does something radically need to change so this is essentially what i call ordering the disorder and in
1: my disorder podcast which i hope listeners will will check out we always try to end with pragmatic workable solutions i may sound terribly naive but i think the israel-palestine conflict is a solvable conflict arthur and the only way that it is going to be solved is yes you have to live with your neighbors the israelis aren't going anywhere the palestinians aren't going anywhere you can't kill all the palestinians and the palestinians are not going to push all the jews into the sea so they've just got to deal with each other and i happen to think that some kind of two-state with with territory swap in the west bank so something like the clinton plan uh, is possible and money is going to have to flow from the Sunni gulf states to make it happen and you're probably going to have to have chinese involvement given the way in which the world works now it would be nice to defeat the russians in ukraine so they're not spoiling because they just want there to be disorder and It's always darkest before the dawn. So I I think that this crisis, much worse than we ever could have imagined, presents various opportunities. No crisis is too good to waste. And I would hope that Biden instructs Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken to really push big and to think out of the box. Like Brett Stevens wrote in his NYT op-ed today. Why don't we have the Saudis and Egyptians and Qataris convene a conference where they open their checkbooks to potentially spend tens of billions of dollars and have a way in which they can be involved as a kind of either condominium or administering power of Gaza. And they need to do this so that the Israeli transferist right doesn't either, you know, commit human rights violations or try to massacre Palestinians or God forbid just push them out into the desert into sinai you know what i mean because there are going to be voices saying we need to finish what was done in 48 and simply get rid of the the palestinians who were there and and, and that's not acceptable and the way to prevent that is to have a larger entity which orders the disorder and what we try to do with the disorder podcast arthur is to take crises whether it's like this middle east war or climate change which you and i talk about or things like tax havens and corruption see how bad it is and then see how out of the very nature of the problem we can find win-win solutions and i think with israel palestine because of how much money there is in the middle east and how much world attention there is on it you actually can order the disorder sadly a lot of the neo-populist leaders don't want to and a lot of our more centrist biden style leaders are just either too weak or not focused enough to make the hard decisions
2: yeah and certainly the you know of course biden um and I, I, you, I, what you just suggested would, would be would be a brilliant start, you know, that that for, for a sort of kind of ambitious, uh, reaching for the skies solution. But Biden faces a combination of uh, a complete lie being put by the sort of right wing in America that that Iranian, the money involved with the Iranian hostage deal that the, the U.S. made. Uh, Paid for this operation, which is literally not true, because of course, of it's
1: not only not true, but the Iranians have more than six billion dollars; they could have used
2: other dollars to right. do this. Yeah, I, indeed, and and also that probably the the costs of this operation, in, in relative terms, are quite low because yes. you know the it, it, it was a kind of small scale, uh, albeit you know devastating impact. Uh, but but the other challenge, which, which again I'm sure you're well aware of, is that the uh, Biden administration can't even get its ambassadors to all the countries in this region confirmed because the Senate. Um sees that as a sort of partisan issue that 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 you know is, is worth blocking. That's the enduring
1: disorder. The House divided against itself shall not stand. And just as Israel has been invaded because of its internal divisions, we in the US and UK, whether it's the leave-remain divide or the Trump anti-Trump divide, we're not functioning as societies. We didn't get to where we were in the Democratic West by having all against all conflicts. An amazing thing, if you look back at British imperial history, whether you think there should have been an empire or not, and of course they did some bad things in the British empire, but from Palmerston until Attlee, it didn't really matter if it was a labor, a liberal or a Tory in charge, they pursued long-term plans towards be it Egypt or Sudan or India. They didn't go back and forth every five-year cycle. And we're at a place now where we have no continuity. And we're essentially seeing that if you don't have consensus at home, if you don't define what those key interests are that we can all agree on, of course, we're going to live in in a chaotic world. So this throws the problem back at us, Arthur. And I want to ask you, how can we, as Brits and Americans who are involved in foreign and domestic policy and care about our countries, use a crisis like this and say, "Hey buddy in the Midlands or in Pennsylvania,
2: don't you see what's happening over there? We need to fix our stuff here at home. How do we do that well it's it's a it's a huge question I mean I think uh sometimes the the disordering uh Political movements burn themselves out through sheer incompetence, uh, and, and it, arguably, um, you know, the first Trump administration rendered itself unelectable um, through sheer incompetence. It then, you know, it then tried an insurrection to cling on to power, um, and and it, it's um, you know we, we may be seeing that in in the sort of short term with with the current uh, British government that that is. His, Doesn't behave like a party that wants to win an election. Not, not of course that they would admit that. But, but that doesn't. I don't think that answers your deeper question, which is this: this issue of uh, persuading people that, of of course, you know, political divide can be helpful. It it drives competition. It drives a sort of a marketplace of ideas and so on. But, but a a politics of division in which uh, the person you disagree with is a traitor probably should go to jail you know you, you you should rewrite the rules of the election to ensure that they never win another election that kind of politics it, it feels like it's it's uh, it's very hard to to, prog- to progress through that but I, I fall back on this point that um, neo populists they're very bad at governing they do badly they can't deliver they can't build railways they can't build border, border walls they can't deal with pandemics um, and it's I, there's no complacency in what I'm saying, but over time, I think in democratic societies, it's quite hard. Of course, you can have your media outliers, you can have your Fox News, and so on, but it gets quite hard to keep hiding these basic truths. And interestingly, there's a, there is an analogy here, I think, with the Arab world. A lot of people in the Arab world are have you know debate this idea of Islamists and whether Islamists should be allowed into governments, uh, and effectively the consensus. In Arab leadership has been you don't let them in, and you know when they have come in, like in Egypt, they, they don't last very long because the military kicks them out. I always felt they should be allowed to govern and govern badly because people will learn, and, and arguably that's what happened in Tunisia, albeit Tunisia then seeped into its own new new type of autocracy. But I mean that the, the you know the, the challenges of democracy in the Arab world are probably for another episode, Jason.
1: Definitely for another episode. Um- It's always a pleasure, Arthur. I look forward to ordering The Disorder with you on your show and my show another time.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this emergency uh, episode. Listeners, you can all catch up with Jason on his own Disorder podcast. And of course, I'm here on Behind the Lines. Thank you for listening. Behind the lines with Arthur Snell has been a Vanna Street production.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials?